Okay, uh, thank you everybody so much uh, for coming to Housing Policy in the 2018 Vancouver Civic Election, a candidate's panel. Uh, it is uh, great to have so many alumni, people from the real estate community, affiliated sectors. Uh, we do this every year. It's a real treat to get uh, uh, familiar faces back together to discuss topics of interest related to real estate. And uh, our thinking this year was, with a municipal election coming, uh, why not talk uh, can what candidates propose to do uh, about a thorny uh, issue, uh, that being housing and maybe a little bit broader land use questions generally. Uh, lots of people to thank, uh, in addition to the candidates who I will be introducing briefly. Uh, Grosvenor provides financial assistance to this event every year, so they are owed a tremendous uh, debt of gratitude. They're also, as you all should be, really good employers of Sauter alumni. So thank you so much, as always, to our friends at Grosvenor. Thank you to the uh, Fairmont for hosting us. I want to thank some staff who I think this has really been a nicely put together event. So number one, of course, Jesse Lamb, who does this every year and has done a fantastic job. Uh, her assistants, uh, Nicole Lobo, George Barreto, Amanda Marr. And at our front desk, student volunteers. We have really, really great students at Sauter. Uh, SWORD uh, provides cases for them. We teach them finance. We teach them development. We teach them land use economics. And Joanna Lee, Satnam Brar, Jacqueline Ng, and Jessica uh, Pumilia, all uh, students who will no doubt uh, make excellent uh, additions to your entity uh, sometime soon. So I would also like to introduce our moderators. You know, I know we have some members of the horrible fake media back there. Okay, the worst. Uh, thank you. Uh, but uh, so, very, uh, one of the real treats uh, of my job, you know, I, I came to sort of, I thought I'd be a nerd in my office and be left alone, much to my surprise. Uh, it's constant media, and it's actually been a real treat. There's many, many people here uh, in the media who do a really good and careful job, uh, I think, providing a lot of detail on things like municipal elections, which you know, are not always uh, something people find entertaining or interesting, so to be informative and do a job is uh, a good job of actually explaining stuff is hard. And I feel like uh, Ian Bushfield from the Canby Report and Nadia Stewart do a particularly excellent job, so I was very pleased to have them uh, join us as panelists. Okay, so I'm probably uh, forgetting something important. But the way I thought I'd introduce the uh, candidates, I asked my uh, students today, my uh, third and fourth year students, how many had seen the movie Star Trek II, uh, The Wrath of Khan, and to my great dismay, like none of them had seen it. And like literally none. And, well, Khan, exactly. But what you may remember from Star Trek II, of course, is the Kobayashi Maru. And the Kobayashi Maru is an impossible test they put you through to see how you handle stress. So I thought I would introduce the candidates uh, with a Kobayashi Maru type scenario. Uh, but that we're not going to learn a lot from this question, uh, just one. I'm looking for a one word answer. So before I start that, let me just talk about procedure. I'll do the one question. Nadia and Ian are going to take over for about an hour, 20, hour 30. When they've exhausted, and, and there's not going to be crosstalk. I would love to do you know, the gotcha questions back and forth, but there's just too many people running for office to make that work. So it's going to be, you know, 90 seconds, and we're going to be pretty authoritarian about that. 
After 90 minutes, if, you know, earlier if you want, of course, but uh, after 90 minutes would be a natural time if, hey, Dayenu with the uh, uh, municipal stuff, if you want to go schmooze over uh, drinks and food again, obviously that's a great break time. But many of you have submitted questions online. I think there's cards where you can hand out, uh, at, figure out questions uh, during the debate. I've collected some of the best stuff from online and uh, we'll, we'll be able to take questions now. So after that 90 minute period, we'll have another 15, 20 minutes to get into gory details proposed uh, by the audience that maybe haven't been covered in sufficient depth. After that, we'll have a media availability uh, and there you go. Okay, so that's where we're going. So let me introduce the nightmare situation uh, and I'm gonna go in uh, reverse order, I guess, from where I'm standing. Uh, introducing the candidates uh, and their party and, uh, and uh, the sort of nightmare uh, scenario. Okay, so actually, you know what, I've got a list of the candidates here, so I'm gonna go with, uh, nah, I'll do it this way, okay. Anyway, so our first candidate uh, is Hector Bremner from Yes. You can applaud now, okay, good, yeah. If you want or whatever you wanna do. So. One word answer. So the situation is you've got an underutilized, for a long time, nearly vacant piece of land deep inside a residential RS zone. A developer is coming before uh, council and the mayor and you gotta vote yes or no on the project. If you vote no, they're gonna default to RS. It's gonna be two luxurious single family homes. Uh, they're not sure if there's gonna be a laneway or basement suite, but that, that's what you're gonna get. If you vote yes, you're gonna get uh, 12, 1250 square foot, three bed, two bath, missing middle townhomes. You know, so a lot of people think that's, you know, sort of the, the future. Uh, the, uh, you know, Generation Yimby has said yes. The City Planning Commission says they're beautiful townhomes and would go very well on the site. However, the neighbors are furious. There are large signs all around decrying this development, and uh, a letter uh, in the Vancouver Sun has said, uh, from the community group, which you, which you think actually speaks for the residents of the neighborhood by and large, anybody who votes for this project will be carving their initials in the very heart of our neighborhood with a chainsaw. This is the worst thing to happen to a residential neighborhood since Freddy Krueger. So the neighbors hate this project. City planning thinks it's good architecture uh, and it's missing middle. And on top of everything else, the developer has offered either three of the units will be turned over to the city to use for affordable rental if they want, or they'll give $3 million in community amenity contribution that the city can use how it wants. So the difficult decision, and I need a one word answer, yes or no, uh, uh, are you going to vote for the project or oppose it? An answer that's not okay is I want to negotiate again. There's no negotiate again. Either vote yes and you get the townhomes or no and you get the single family. So we'll do a little roll call. Hector Bremner, uh, yes. Absolutely yes. All right. Uh, next door we have Gene Swanson running for council from COPE. And I should say Hector's for mayor. Gene Swanson, candidate for council. How do you vote? Yes, but we have... Uh, yes, okay, very good. No, no buts, no buts. Okay, Pete Fry, Green Party for Council. I guess you'll have to hand me a chainsaw. <laughs> chainsaw, all right, three for three, okay. Yes. Uh, Diego Cardona from uh, Vision Vancouver. Yes. Uh, Ken Sim, NPA for Mayor. No. No. Uh, <clears throat> Shauna Sylvester, Independent for Mayor. 
Yes, and I'm glad to see you used my affordability mechanism and how to get to that. Uh, 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 yes, oops, sorry, sorry, okay, great, thank you. Christine Boyle, One City for Council. We need more family houses. Uh, yes, yes, okay, yes. So, uh, David Chen from Pro Vancouver for Mayor. I wish there was an option C, but no. No, okay. Yes. Kenneth Kennedy Stewart, <laughs> independent for Mayor, says yes. So everybody said yes, except Ken Sim and David Chen said no. So there you go, there's your vote on the Kobayashi Maru project. It is with pleasure that for the next 80 minutes I turn it over to Nadia and Ian. Thank you. Just to give a quick overview of how we're going to deal with this 80 minutes now, I guess. We've written down nine questions where you will get a little bit more than one word. We're going to give you 90 seconds each to answer. If we don't get through all of those nine questions, we're going to finish with a lightning round of more yes and no questions, or one word, let's say. You can use a different word, but it has to be one word. Uh, the order you see before you was determined by me shuffling these cards randomly, so there's no bias as far as I can tell other than random happenstance. I'll turn it over to Nadia for the first question. All right. How many questions, sorry, we'll, we'll start with this first question, sorry, from Alex Hemingway from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. So for you, Kennedy, how many homes will you create and what kind? That's a great question. Um, I have announced a policy over the last, uh, this week on Monday and today, uh, 85,000 homes over the next 10 years. 25,000 are nonprofit rentals, uh, so they're rental, affordable rental units run by nonprofits. 25,000 market rentals, and the rest uh, would be market. So 60% rental, 40% uh, for purchase. Great, and when you answer faster, we can get more questions. <laughs> David. Um, I think the problem is that we have a lot of ideas about what we can do, and we have to realize that capacity is sometimes a problem. Um, the city's target of 2,000 is doable. I've looked at temporary modular housing as a stopgap measure, and I think that uh, we could probably hit 5,000 a year. But we also have to realize that the council only has a four-year term, and its maximum effectiveness will be in three years. The fourth year, things kind of wind down because there's a change in the wind. So we do know that we have to keep up, and uh, I'm looking towards fast economic measures to house people as quickly as possible, and then we can look at the more permanent uh, types of housing that will take longer to actually develop. So how many homes will you create? Well, we're, we're looking at, like I said, 5,000 a year. So over the five, four years, we're looking at 20,000 minimum. Okay, Christine. Um, so one city uh, central to our platform is ensuring that every neighborhood belongs to everyone in the city. And we're proposing a land value capture mechanism to allow the local government to better fund deep affordability across all neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure I'll get to talk to the land value capture a bit later. Um, but to Alex's question, one city is uh, committed to building 5,000 non-market housing units a year. We want to ensure that uh, 12,000 guaranteed affordable city-owned public housing units can be built on city-owned land. And in, in addition, uh, that we, as quickly as we can, build um, 2,200 modular, temporary modular housing units. Uh, we think we can do that in the next year or two so that we are housing everyone who's currently living on our streets. That's, a, that's an urgent priority. Shauna. 
I think the framing isn't the right kind of framing I would use for the question. It's not the number of houses. I think we have to look at a different framing. I want to get to 3% vacancy rates to get to affordable rental. On the homelessness, 2,800 units, 1,000 for women and children because the way in which women are dis disproportionately affected by homelessness. But I think we have to look at, I would in the first year renew the leases on the existing co-op so we don't lose housing, but we have to get to that 3% vacancy rate. We've got to stop the hemorrhaging in terms of the number of units we're losing and we've got to ensure that we're putting in co-housing, co-ops, um, housing authorities, and um, gentle densification with a different kind of uh, purpose-built affordable rental. Ken. And this is sort of a follow-up to Tom's uh, uh, impossible question. We are actually going to ask all our neighborhoods what they want to build and how they want to densify the city. Uh, in addition to that, what we're going to do is we're going to allow two secondary suites in homes across the city. So that should give us in upwards of 40,000 potential units across the city. Um, the second thing we're going to do is we are actually going to build 30,000 units on city-owned land. And then uh, from a market perspective, we're going to uh, free up uh, the permitting process. Uh, we're going to work on the workflow. We're going to... Um, for all the standard simple permits, we're basically going to approve them right away. And then for the more complicated ones, we're going to work on the workflow. I'm a workflow expert, so I understand how to do this. And from that, we'll let the market decide how many units they build in addition to what we're going to do on city land. All right. Thank you for the question. So uh, in as Vision Vancouver, in essence, we support the current housing strategy of the city, but we also want to build on it and we think it should be more aggressive. So we want to commit to 88,000 new homes in the next 10 years, 40,000 of them tied to local incomes, two-thirds of them rentals, mix, laneways, coach houses, duplexes, triplexes, uh, 16,000 of them below market rates, and 2,000 new co-ops. And also we want to increase the goal of modular housing from 600 to 1,200. Pete. So it's a, it's a bit of a loaded question given that uh, currently, we don't actually build housing in the city of Vancouver yet, but uh, we permit the building of housing. So a lot of this is dependent on the market, and there are market circumstances that are probably changing right now that may uh, make a difference with how we can achieve those targets. But I think uh, right now we have about 43,000 active development projects or active units being built across the region in the GVRD. I think we can hopefully target for at least 5,000 units a year, uh, and half of those should be non-market. We need to urgently address the homeless situation, and we uh, need to be building more temporary modular housing. I think we, we've seen the success of the provincial program. We can't wait around for the province to actually address those needs, so we have to pony up as well as a city. Uh, but we need to aggressively pursue those partnerships. We need to work with senior levels of government to actually help facilitate the build because I think we are entering a different time as far as uh, construction in the city and we need to have uh, an adaptive plan to address changing situations, changing economic situations, the stagnation of uh, construction, changing interest rates, et cetera. Jean. So we all believe that health care is a basic human right, right? So we have taken health care out of the market system. Same with housing. COPE and our candidates, Derek O'Keefe and Ann Roberts, our council candidates, we believe that housing is a basic human right, and that means we have to work really hard to get it out of the market system. And that's why we're proposing a mansion tax on mansions over $5 million to get enough revenue in the first year to actually build enough modular housing for all of the over 2,000 homeless people that have been counted. 
We've all seen how successful that modular housing is, and it's, it's amazing. After that, we should start building social housing for low-income renters and workers, starting with the people most in need, and we are thinking we can get about 4,000 units a year. But it's not enough just to build new social housing. We have to work on making housing affordable for people who are renting in the private market, and that's why we're calling for a, a four-year rent freeze to be reassessed at the end of four years if we still have a really low vacancy rate. So live tonight, while we are sitting here talking about housing policy, the most substantive plan in 91 years will be released. We are operating in Vancouver on a plan that was introduced in 1927. It was written by Harlan Bartholomew and another man named James Payton, who was a Vancouver City Councilor. Their approach was both economic and racial segregation. In 91 years, we've done a lot better than that, but we're left with the architecture of this. Until we address the fact that 76% of our land is exclusionary to middle-class families, we will not be able to build any of these units. And that's what we're going to do. Immediately begin the consultation of a citywide plan that will replace the Bartholomew plan and set us upon a path for success for the next 91 years and beyond. And within that, we are, have already committed, within a three-year market correction program, to build 50 to 70,000 new market rentals, including 15,000 over 10 years, social housing units that will be managed under VAHA, the Vancouver Affordable Housing Agency, and be maintained for the working poor, people with disabilities, seniors, new immigrants, people just starting out. We need access to real middle-class housing. Five seconds. Tinkering around the edges isn't gonna get it done. We need a real plan, and we gotta say yes. All right, for the next question, we'll start with David Chen, and similarly, for future questions, we'll rotate through to give you each a chance to start. Could you remind us how much time we have on each? You have 90 seconds, so Thank Hector you. was the only one to use 90 seconds gotcha. in that last one. So there's a minute, thanks. Uh, the second question, what changes do you make in your first 90 days to clear the backlog in the planning office? So the first thing that uh, we've talked about is obviously we have to speed up processing. It's, it's a huge concern. We're the only place in the world that seems to take as long as we do to process permits. The interesting thing is that technology can be used to our advantage. How many of you have actually gone to City Hall and painfully handwritten out applications and waited for them to get through? In my business as a certified financial planner, we deal with the insurance industry, and they dealt with this a long time ago. And what they did is they turned all the applications into online applications. So by doing that, the computer can actually analyze it, and it actually approves or declines the first 90% on average, that's the stat. Then 10% has to be looked at by a human. So it goes to secondary inspection. That secondary inspection, you get someone that looks at it and says, do we really need to fully underwrite this? And if it does, then it goes to tertiary. I guarantee you, once we get in there, we've got two technology experts on our team, we want to automate all this. We want it so that if you are a developer, that you can create a profile, and that profile part means that you don't have to duplicate that same darn information all the time on all the applications. By going to this, that will actually speed up things. That will streamline, that will help to clear the backlog. So that is what our intention is within the first 90 days. Christine. So One Cities Housing Platform certainly uh, agrees with the premise that housing is a human right and that we need to be approaching it as such. Um, so uh, I, I think you'll find from all of us that there's agreement that these processes need to be streamlined. And in particular for us, we need to be prioritizing rental 
and social, supportive, and seniors housing in this city. We know that we're in a housing crisis, and that crisis uh, may be impacting all of us in this city, but it's not impacting us all in the same way. And so we want to prioritize those most vulnerable and impacted in this housing crisis in our first 90 days to ensure that their needs are being met and that the types of housing that support them are being fast-tracked to be built in every neighborhood. And then we start looking longer term at the uh, at the rest of the spectrum, the income spectrum of who's being impacted in this crisis and how we start to uh, make efficiencies in building the types of housing that Vancouverites need. Shauna. I think one of the things I'm he hearing over and over again is that we are not really clear on where our taxes are going. And so in the first 100 days, I'm making a commitment to do a report, a financial report, with a line of sight on the property endowment fund. We don't, that's operating a bit in the dark for us, so want to do that. So that's first. There's a policy review in process right now. If you go in with a development application, it's a kind of snakes and ladders. It's very opaque process. So one of the things that um, I proposed in the first 100 days is to really get clear on which policies are overlapping, what are historic and what can be cleaned up because we need to fast track to affordable purpose-built rental. In the first 100 days, I will renew those 50 co-op leases that should have been renewed 10 years ago. They will get done in the first uh, 50 days. The other thing is I sat down with a, a number of the workers who have told me time and time again, they see backlogs, they tell their managers, you know, if you put someone over there, you'll get rid of that backlog. And so that they do, and the backlog's gone, and then those people get put back over here. So I think that there is a conversation that has to be had with frontline workers on how do we achieve efficiencies. So really looking at government being much more of an enabler, not as just a punitive place. So that's one of the things that I'm really looking at. I'm also looking at a series of principles to sit down with City Council to follow through with. Okay, okay I'm, I'm known around the world as a workflow expert. Um, I've been written up in business books that are used around the world. Uh, we have health authorities and hospitals that actually, uh, from across North America, who actually come up to Vancouver and they see what we're doing because we're experts in workflow. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to fast track certain permits. We'll get them out of the flow. But we're actually going to, you know, walk through the whole system with city workers, architects, small home builders, large home builders, and we're actually going to see every step of the process and what we need um, or what we don't need, we'll get rid of. What's working well, we'll do more of. Uh, it's not the people. It, we have a very, very broken system. And... Throwing more people or technology at it isn't going to work. You know, when you throw technology at stuff, it only makes you do things faster. So if you're making mistakes, you're just going to make more mistakes faster. So we really need to look at the workflow. 25 know, seconds. Sorry? 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Um, yeah, and uh, when it comes to people, while it, it sounds convenient to throw people at a problem, if you don't have the training, it's going to make the situation worse. Diego. Thank you. Thank you. I think I want to start with this question by acknowledging that uh, I've heard this loud and clear, but I also want to acknowledge where the problem comes from, and is that is from a, from a record level of housing supply being built in the city and record levels of requests to build. Uh, so, yeah, we have this problem. We have amazing staff that kudos to them. They should be applauded for the efforts and the work that they carry. Uh, but also this needs that solution. So for us, we're definitely looking at, at a fast track program with clear priorities around rental housing, 
affordable housing and social housing being fast-tracked. And I think down the road, we can look at a digitizing mechanism for rental per uh, for developing permits like New York. But I think that in terms of the first 90 days, I think we're looking at a fast-track program that puts a priority on affordability. Okay. Well, I'll agree with my friend Diego here that we do have amazing staff. Uh, but the last 10 years uh, have decimated that staff through mismanagement and top-down approach. Uh, so we need to really restore that culture of excellence at City Hall and with our staff. I imagine that most of the folks in the room here are well aware that uh, we have the longest wait times for permit and development applications in the entire GVRD. Maybe White Rock's a little longer, but it's pretty bad. And it's not that we're living in a different country or we have some extraordinary BC building codes that are different from the other municipalities. We do have room to finesse our own codes. Uh, we do have room to improve the process. We need to go back to assigning one single planner that can do all the navigation for our developers, uh, and developers being small home, small row house, uh, or big tower. But we need to really fine tune that process so that they're being handled by one point person. Uh, we need to prioritize the housing that we need. Uh, we need clarity around a lot of the, the CACs and the kind of expectations and developer contributions because it's not clear right now. Uh, we need to immediately strike a task force and work with builders, work with developers, work with all the key stakeholders and figure out what's not working and how we're going to improve it. Uh, it's a lot to do in 90 days, but ironically one of the biggest uh, hindrances to building housing is construction costs. And of course construction costs are hampered by the fact that we can't get people to, who can afford to live in our city, and it's actually impacting our ability to build homes. All right. Time's up. Uh, Jean. Yeah, I'd like to start with something that everyone, including myself, forgot, which is to acknowledge that we're on the unceded, stolen territory of the Coast Salish people, the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish, and thank them so much for taking care of this land for millennia. Here, here. Uh, if all regulations were eliminated, it still wouldn't make house, housing affordable for the people who need it the most. And a lot of regulations are good. Like, I really like the fact that we have development permit signs go up when there's going to be a rezoning and that people get a chance to have input on that. I think that's good. So I, I'd, COPE, at COPE, we don't think that regulations are automatically bad. There's regulations for trees. There's regulations for parking. There's a lot of regulations that make our city the way we want it. There's regulations for views. So we have to remember that some regulations, a lot of regulations, are really, really good, and we need them. So there are some places where we can streamline regulations, like, for example, in uh, applications for solar panels. For COPE, we would prioritize streamlining in areas where non-market housing was happening and where um, changes for environmental conditions were being made. Um, yeah, and if there's obvious ways to improve efficiency for everyone, that's fine. But it's not a total priority for us. Okay, thank you. And Hector. So last year when I ran for council and uh, I ran in opposition to the current regime, you know, of course in politics you always say city hall's a mess. And then you get in there and you realize how much of a mess it actually is. It's really broken. Staff are frustrated, stakeholders are frustrated, communities are frustrated. Uh, it, it's, it's just been exasperated for years. And so through a lot of consultation, a lot of discussion with staff, a lot of discussion with stakeholders, discussion with communities, our plan has concluded that we need to conduct a core review right away 
What we need to do is integrate smart city technology. We've identified that we are about 10 to 15 years behind in comparable municipalities. Uh, Pete's right, long wait times, two years to get a building permit. Our city's own numbers, five to seven years to go from inquiry to move-in permit in the city of Vancouver. Five to seven years in the midst of a housing crisis. It's irresponsible. Other cities right next to us are getting the job done, yet we are not. But we're going to need a city-wide plan. We're going to need to pre-zone, city-initiated pre-zoning in more areas. And we're going to need to use uh, an effective use of smart city technology and join the rest of G7-type cities and get with the 21st century and say yes to fixing this housing crisis. All right. And finally, Kennedy. Great. Well, um, I moved out here in the... Uh, <laughs> The late 80s with 100 bucks my grandmother gave me and I was a rock musician and I played uh, I ran a printing press while I played at the Commodore uh, and then one day I got hired at City Hall I was a uh, in the planning department I decided I wanted to do something different and so I've, I've worked in the city uh, during the city plan process and actually saw some of my colleagues here today so uh, I do know a bit about City Hall and and Working there totally excited me about cities. So what I did is I went off to SFU and got a master's in political science where I studied cities, in particular <coughs> Vancouver, and public management. I like that so much. Went off to the London School of Economics and got a PhD in the same topic, looking at world cities. Was promptly hired back to SFU in the School of Public Policy uh, to specialize in cities and public management. Um, then was elected to Parliament, where for the last seven years I have been uh, working to change how Canada works. So, um, you know, what I do know is uh, radical change is going to get you strikes. And I think that is something that we're really not acknowledging at this table. Uh, in the 90s, when I was, the first day I was hired, we went on a walkout. There is a, there is a powerful union here, a bunch of powerful unions that have seconds. to be considered. And we have to add staff to speed this stuff up, but we also have to streamline the processes. But we also have to understand what we're doing. All right, our third question. We'll start with you, Christine. Vancouver's west side seems to be a target for rezoning these days. However, previous discussions of rezoning have often been met with stiff opposition. What is the role of community consultations with regards to what gets built? Thanks. So um, I am happy to have this conversation. As you can imagine, it's a conversation that we're having all the time. I grew up in Caresdale on Vancouver's west side. Uh, it was lively. There were kids playing kick the can on the streets. Um, it was great. Uh, I'm raising my family in Grandview Woodlands now, um, and similarly vibrant and diverse, like I, like I want them to experience. Um, uh, and I hear from my parents, uh, and I hear from other folks who live in the neighborhood that I grew up in, that it's hollowing out, that they don't see kids running around anymore, that small businesses are having trouble with foot traffic. Um, I heard at a meet and greet recently someone say, you know, even if we gave our house to our kids, they, they wouldn't take it. They don't want to live here because um, the neighborhood is too quiet for them. So I got to bring my whole four generations of my family this summer to Trout Lake for an outdoor music evening. We had a picnic in the park and, uh, and my whole family was astounded at how many people were there, hundreds of families having a picnic together. Um, and and that happens for a couple reasons. And one is that uh, there's more people living in the neighborhood. 20 seconds. And the other is that people have smaller private spaces. Uh, and so they come out and learn how to share public spaces together. And that's the kind of vibrancy that I want in neighborhoods across the city and that I think we can work with communities to build. Thank you. Shauna. I, I think Christine is right. I've been hearing, I've, I've done 
five months now of consultations, many of them on the west side, and over and over again, hollowing out the idea that kids aren't playing on the street, we're losing our high streets, we're losing Dunbar, West 10th, and others because the customer base is not there, and there isn't a vibrancy. You've got so uh, an empty house on every block, and that that's a serious issue in terms of creating um, a vibrant neighborhood. What I am also hearing, though, is that they don't want the kind of density that comes with just bringing big towers along um, a corridor. What, what West End folks want is really very much uh, neighborhood and character, housing that fits within that neighborhood, that character, that protects the canopy. And I think a big part of my housing platform is really looking at increasing density that's within the characteristics of those neighborhoods. But we can, the biggest thing we could do for climate change right now is deal with the fact that there are more people living one person in those homes than there seconds. are anything else. So if we can increase density in a gentle way, and we can also start to deal with the bigger issues of finding seniors housing, creating places where their kids can live, we will go so much further. And that that comes through a really authentic you, listening process. Ken. <clears throat> so I believe in consulting with neighborhoods, and I've spoken to over 6,300 people in the city since April 11th. I'm going to use the commercial drive example. And so if you talk to the residents on the drive, there is no support for a 20-story tower at Commercial and Kitchener. You talk to the same residents, and you go six to seven blocks to the south where the SkyTrain is, the same residents would support density in that area because it makes sense. It fits. There's transportation and we're not creating a livability problem. When I spoke to a bunch of residents in Dunbar, the overwhelming response was um, similar to what you said. Um, we want our high street back. We want to see our kids and our grandkids play in the streets. And we're okay with rural housing and townhomes. They don't want a 20-story tower, but they are accepting of density. And that's, uh, you know, why I answered no to Tom's question, because I think this last government has not listened for the last 10 years. And our government, you know, when I'm mayor or if I'm mayor, 20 seconds. Uh, with our NPA team, we are going to listen to all of our communities. Thank you. I think this, this, com uh, this question goes to, you know, to the heart of the issue. And is, and is, you know, because we're talking about people's realities, we're talking about people's homes, we're talking about the neighborhoods that they make their homes. Uh, I'm a young person in the city. I want all young people like myself to be able to afford and to want to live in the city of Vancouver and to want to, and to choose which neighborhood they want to live in. And that requires a conversation about how we make those neighborhoods inclusive of everybody from every single income background, from every single ethnicity, and from every single type of family, whether it's a couple, whether it's a couple with kids, or whether it's a single person. So I don't want to own a single family home. I don't need to own a single family home. I don't need that space. I need a different type of space. And I want that space to be available to me and to peers like myself who are under the age of 29, the biggest the highest growing demographic in Vancouver to be available in every single neighborhood. And, you know, I ran in the last by-election. I talked to lots of folks in Dunbar and Carisdale who want to downsize. So this is a conversation that's possible. 
and it's and we can get there if we do it together and we listen to peoples uh, because this is an emotional topic for a lot of folks. Thanks, Diego. Pete. So <clears throat> I realize this was framed as a as a West Side context, um, and sure, I've been door knocking in the West Side, Dunbar, Point Grey. Nobody's arguing against increased density. Uh, it's people get that we need to increase density and to keep our urban villages alive. What the issue really is about is about consultation and how that's been broken under the current uh, current city government. We need to improve how we do consultation. We need to work together. We need to engage and participate our, our people so that we can pre-plan what we want our communities to look like and we can work towards that together. Uh, and that includes building a comprehensive city plan. And that's one of the first things that we're looking to do is build a comprehensive citywide plan so that we all have clarity around what we're expecting uh, and, and, and how we're going to get there. Uh, it's not just a West Side story, whether you're a shark or a jet. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so I've been on two uh, local area planning committees, and um, the local area planning cons consultation process in Vancouver is kind of like the judge said it was in the Kinder Morgan case, a sticky note consultation where people write what they think on sticky notes that go goes back up to City Hall and then the City Hall policy comes down to the neighborhood. That's what happens when you're a low-income neighborhood anyway. And so, yeah, we do need to consult with neighborhoods, but yes, we also need to insist that social housing goes everywhere so that we can become a completely, ex ex so we can become an inclusive city. And um, I've experienced so, uh, you know, Chinese seniors have to, having to organize and fight for years to stop a condo project five times, the same condo project, 105 Kiefer, uh, because what they wanted wasn't listened to because other people were listened to. So when you talk about consultation, you have to think, who is being listened to? Is it only the BIAs? Is it only the business people? Or are the low-income people being listened to, too? You know, when the downtown east side says it doesn't want what the city calls social mix, it's ignored. But when Point Grey says it doesn't want social mix, it's it's gone. The city goes with it, right? So that kind of consultation has to stop. Thank you, Jean. Hector. I hope folks will take time to read our action plan because in it is a history of how we've got to this point. And there's a reason why the west side is what it is. And it is based on a principle that we have continued today, and that is we plan for the form, not the function of neighborhoods. So we plan for building form, but not how communities work. That's why we've committed to bringing in a chief economist for the city of Vancouver, because we need to start planning around how these communities work in a nucleus way. How, do, how does a family live there? Where do they work? How does a small business survive in that area? This is a critical move. We must have evidence-based decision-making because right now what we have is the west side of Vancouver is 25% of our land mass. But over the last 30 years, it has absorbed 2%, 2% of population increase. So we have been making this mistake over and over and over again, is creating official community plans around building form, arguing over the spindle of a porch or the slope of a roof. But my friends, the character of a neighborhood is not defined by those things. It's defined by the people that live seconds. there. And we have 9,000 less children enrolled in our schools. We have seniors leaving this community because they cannot afford to live in their single-family detached homes anymore. That's our character because we haven't cared, and we haven't taken the action, and we need <clears> to do that. 
Thanks, Hector. Kennedy. Yeah, so why I moved to Vancouver in the late uh, 80s is because uh, years before, uh, my family went bankrupt. My dad lost his job in the middle of an OPEC crisis. We lost our home. Uh, I ended up living in rural poverty for five years, so I had to get out of there, so I learned how to play an instrument and got out. Uh, that was a global economic crisis that caused that. No local government could have helped. Um, and we're in the middle of a global economic storm right now. Uh, we have a 2.5% inflation rate. Uh, our interest rates are going up at the same time, which you can talk to economists, and that's that's a little bit weird. Uh, we also have a, a madman south of the border who's looking at ripping up NAFTA, which could, uh, of course, dramatically affect our workforce, our job markets here, and our employment rates. So um, I think this is... Uh, a very serious situation that we have to get a handle on and we have to think about how this is going to affect our city and plan accordingly. The um, We do have almost a perfect moment here. When I talk to small businesses and they tell me, uh, last year, two years ago I advertised for a cook and I had 50 applications and this year I advertised for a cook and I had zero, it means that you're starting to get labor market shortage on the, uh, of course, the lower end of the, of the 20 wage seconds. So, questions on consultations. Right. So there is an unprecedented appetite for change here. And the change is for workforce housing. It seems like business and workers are coming together. And that's what's in my plan. That's what my whole plan is based on, is trying to make sure that we provide for our workforce. And I can talk more about that later. Thank you. So I think Ian pointed out something really important. The question asked two things. What is the purpose of the consult? And you're facing opposition. So I recently wrote an article in Georgia Strait called When the Pendulum Swings the Other Way. The reason why I wrote this is because we're in a culture right now where we listen to play lip service. We don't actually listen to the stakeholders. And in there, Obama was giving a speech at Nelson Mandela's 100th anniversary. And he said that Nelson Mandela always believed in democracy. But he said, never forget the rights of the minority. The challenge is you're talking about neighborhoods versus the city. I've been to public hearings. How many of you have been to public hearings? I can tell you, we see people that go there to pretend to be someone else. As an example, I went to uh, the Pavco uh, public hearing to uh, try to oppose the height because there were other builds that we could do. And an individual stepped up and said, I live in an SRO, but he was reading off of a Mac laptop. There's something wrong with that. That doesn't fit. So what I would say is that public consultations are very important. We need to listen to the people. We need to think about what the people know. person born and raised in Vancouver knows a lot of these secrets. But we need to get IDs from people. We need to know who those stakeholders are. We need to listen. And we need to integrate within what we know about existing infrastructure and what the Thank city you, can tolerate. Thank you. All right. Our next question, we'll start with Christine. Uh, I just started, Shauna. Oh, my bad. I have, this, I have a cheat sheet. Shauna. We'll start with Shauna. Everyone knows Canada's population is aging and that we have not built neighborhoods to house our diverse seniors and our diverse populations. How do we move forward and house seniors in Vancouver? Thank you for that question because I do have actually a whole platform on seniors. Um, my mother... Uh, just passed away a year and a half ago of Alzheimer's and I am from a very large family five kids and we're very very good at advocating and it took us five years to advocate to find housing for my mother and it was really substandard housing. I put seniors as the third most important platform because I see our aging population and we're not ready for that and we certainly haven't created the kind of housing that's necessary. We're warehousing 
our seniors. We're not creating vibrant, active places. I actually think the best kind of housing for seniors is one that provides <laughs> and enables them to live there within the income, but it also is multi-generational. It's mi mixed income. So I actually think that there are a number of different kinds of models we can look at to support seniors. And I also think we need to look at the care, the supports that we put in play, and the vibrancy. These are our elders. They have so much to offer, and we're not tapping into it. Ken? I think this is a setup because uh, <laughs> I've spent the last 20 years of my life trying to keep seniors at home. That's that's what we do at my company. And um, I have a dear place in my heart for seniors. Um, and housing's a serious, like it, it's an emotional issue for me because I know when seniors are forced out of their homes, doesn't matter if it's a nice home or a, a not so nice home, they're forced out of their community and their health goes down. And then it just spirals out of control. And so for that, for, for me, this is emotional. Um, this is what we're gonna do. Um, we're going to protect our seniors. Um, well, we're going to pro protect everyone, but uh, the number one thing is demo evictions. So when a lot of the housing units that seniors live in um, get demo evicted, we're going to stop that. We're actually going to make sure that there's a transition plan, and we're going to stick up for seniors. 30 seconds. We're also going to invest in our, our um, um, senior uh, centers. Um, they provide community for our seniors wherever they live. And so that's what we're going to do. And the third thing, I know it's a little off topic, but like I said, we have consulted with like 6,300 people in the city. And a lady by the name of Clemencia, she works seconds. at the uh, Granville Senior Center. She uh, alerted us about how in the downtown east side, seniors do not have a homeless shelter there when they need it. Thank you. And so that's what we're going to build. Diego. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is this. It goes to the heart of many of us in here. I, I'm a former youth in care. I, I don't have family other than my sister in Canada, but uh, my only uh, parental figure is my grandma, the only grandma that I have left. And I, I part of my, one of my three jobs <laughs> uh, is I teach Zumba to seniors who, like myself, I are survivors of cancer. So this is uh, very close to my heart. And so I spent a lot of time talking to seniors, and I think that one option that we can explore is the using the model of co-housing that was built in Victoria and 33rd. Now, that pilot project is all market units, but I think that we could, we should contemplate the idea of co-housing, affordable co-housing for seniors. It provides units to live in, it provides a vibrant community, and it provides the shared spaces and amenities that seniors need. So for me, co-housing for seniors is a big option. And of course, many seniors that I've met at co-ops, uh, we, we need to renew co-op leases. We need to figure out a way that they can stay in co-ops because many of them want to downsize because their kids are big, they're grown, and they're gone from the co-ops. So those will be my priorities. Thank you. Pete. Yeah, uh, Ken, that's a great idea, purpose-built shelter for seniors. Uh, but I should tell you, too, that shelters aren't homes, and, and there's a big difference. Uh, we have so many fantastic communities in our city, uh, and one of the really neatest ones, I find, is uh, Southeast Falls Creek, or Southwest Falls Creek. Uh, built in the 70s, purpose-built, CMHC money, really neat, neat form, uh, and a lot of family housing. The problem is, is they didn't build a complete community, because as a lot of those folks 
aged and their kids moved out of the house, they're left rattling around in a three or four bedroom con uh, condo or row house or townhouse or whatever it is, and they have nowhere to go and stay within their community. So we need to be building complete communities that consider people aging and how they can stay in their community and move into a smaller place, downsize, whatever, and free up that housing for families. Uh, and another big thing that we need to do is, is start loosening up how we allow the building of secondary suites and tertiary suites and laneway homes to allow people to stay in their homes for longer and not have to move uh, and to actually provide that kind of gentle density that we talk about in a comprehensive plan that we want to bring. Thank you. Jean. So the biggest problem for seniors in housing is money. A senior on the old age pension and the guaranteed income gets about $14.50 a month, which is less than the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment. So some things to do. Co-ops. Ensure that the 50 co-ops that are on city lease land have low enough lease rates that they continue can continue to have low-income residents, including seniors. Um, huge issue, especially in the West End and other inner-city neighborhoods, rent eviction and dem eviction. We need to change the city's tenant protection and relocation plan so that if any landlords wants to rent evict or dem evict, they have to guarantee that the tenant returns to the new unit or the renovated unit at the same rent. Homeless shelter for seniors, bad idea. Seniors need homes. Modular homes are virtually cheaper than shelters. In the long run, they're way cheaper than shelters. No shelters for seniors, only homes for seniors. 30 seconds. And I just want to make this point. Um, if seniors have affordable housing, like I do, I live in a co-op and I'm a senior, you don't have to have a home that you can sell for your retirement because your rent is low enough that you can live in a nice place with Ten a seconds. nice community around you that's very supportive. And because the housing is out of the market, the rent is low enough that you can afford it on a pen. Thank you. Hector. We've seen this crisis heading at us for decades, and we've been doing nothing about it. In the last three years alone, we've had a 30% increase in homelessness in the city of Vancouver, thanks to the irresponsible approaches. And the biggest demographic growing in within that 30%, seniors. Used to be able to rent in the basement suite in East Vancouver for about 800 bucks just four or five years ago. Today, it's over $2,000. They're not a monolithic group. It's not monochromatic, seniors are diverse, some are own homes. They need to be able to unlock the $355 billion. That is a third of a trillion dollars of mortgage-free equity in this city. They need to be able to subdivide their properties. We need to have more options in our RS zone so they can unlock that equity and downsize responsibly. When they can no longer physically or uh, as in my father's case, uh, mentally live alone any longer, they need to be able to go into assisted living. Assisted living is a f essentially illegal in most of the city. But we're going to legalize it in all neighborhoods. We're going to make sure that grandparents are going to be near grandchildren because my wife and I raised two kids. And if it wasn't for my mother-in-law, who we lost just a couple months ago, if it wasn't for her and having that family close by, this wouldn't be a place worth living. And that's what we're doing. And we have to say yes to all types of housing in our neighborhoods now. All right. Thank you. Kennedy. Well, just to go back to Nova Scotia, uh, when I grew up there, uh, my mom is a seniors care worker and uh, she still lives there in a farmhouse. Uh, and for 40 years, she's brought seniors into our home and it serves as the local hospice because there is none there. So my whole life, I've lived with seniors from different families that come in and, you know, 
go on to the next life uh, through there. So I have a deep understanding of that. And the number one thing that a senior would tell you is I want to age in place. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's that's possible in this city, but there's complications that come along with that. Uh, a, a lot of folks that bought a long time ago have a lot of equity in their home, so it's possible for them, because this is what might happen with my mom right now, uh, to use that and to stay in, in place. But the problem is when they can't drive anymore, uh, how do they get around? Uh, so, so one very simple solution is to increase the number of community buses. Uh, you talk to TransLink, they say if you can get an 80% rider capacity, then it basically pays for yourself. So what you have to do is just get people thinking about using these buses and they can go to their, uh, you know, the library and the, the pharmacy and the doctor's appointment all in kind of one trip around their neighborhood. It makes the neighborhoods more vibrant. It, it reduces uh, isolation. Um, so uh, as an MP, uh, I fought for these kind of routes. Uh, in fact, when TransLink was trying to take them away, I would get together with seniors and I would uh, bring them back and increase the frequency because... Uh, that's what people Five need seconds. in the city is an advocate, and I will bring in a renter's advocate to help uh, seniors sift through the paperwork if they're being Thank renovicted. You. Thanks. All right. David. Okay. So as a financial planner, uh, about two and a half years ago, we were alerted to something that was kind of a no-brainer. We're facing a wave of seniors landing. The baby boomers are coming. In 7.5 more years, one-third of Canada will be over 65. And these seniors will span a great spectrum of social economic statuses. So one of the things that we have to understand is, yes, we do need some affordable housing for seniors. That can come in the form of co-ops. That can come in the form of land trusts. That can come in the form of government housing. The government housing has to be set up so that through the covenants, housing agreements, we have welfare rate, hills rate, and truly affordable not this crazy thing where they're saying that 3702 for a three-bedroom, 1,000-square-foot apartment is affordable. That takes an income of over 150000 a year to, to afford, and the median in Vancouver is eighty nine. But that aside, there's some other things that we have to think about. I talked to Clemency and Les as well, but I ask a different question. 30 seconds. I know that in healthcare, you age more gracefully if you have senior centers, communication with others. We need more of those. We need grants for those. Uh, so in one of my jobs, I'm a, a United Church minister, and so I get to talk to many seniors, as is the demographic uh, of the church these days. I hear from many seniors about the challenges of housing in this city, uh, and I have two grandmothers still alive in uh, Metro Vancouver, uh, and I hear from them as well about a priority not to age in place necessarily, but to age within their community. So one of my grandmothers at 89, her husband passed away. She couldn't be happier to move out of this big old home that she had raised six kids in, uh, but she didn't want to have to move far away from the shops that she liked to walk to, the community center that she had friends to meet at. She wanted to be able to age within her community uh, and keep up the life that she was living very remarkably well at 89. Um, so I think we want to create those options in neighborhoods, absolutely, so people can do that. Um, and as Jean and others said, lots of seniors don't have the equity of a home to bank on for their future. And so we, seconds. in particular, also need to be conscious of how we're creating affordable, stable housing for seniors on pensions, for seniors on low incomes. I think co-ops and co-housing in community is important. Uh, we need to be supporting that necessary Five housing. Seconds. Ken, we'll start our last question with you. All right. Community amenity contributions have become a bone of contention between developers in the city. 
Did we miss Shauna? No, no. no she started. No, she started. You want to go? It's all go, good. Go, sir. It's okay. Yeah, no, we'll take that. All right. So, Ken. CACs Community CACs. That's right. Have become a bone of contention between developers in the city. Should CACs be negotiated or set at a predetermined rate? They should be set, and there should be absolute clarity as to what a CAC should be before anyone buys a piece of property. That's the whole challenge with uh, what we're doing right now. So, you know, if you're a small home or a developer or what have you, um, you buy a piece of property, you have no idea what the CAC is going to be in the future, and it's a negotiation, and it sets off this cascading ripple effect that's led to unaffordability in the city. And if we write that equation, we will have a serious impact on affordability. All right. I can talk about it more, but it's okay. you don't need to. Don't need it's up to you. Thank you for the question. Uh, CACs uh, are important. They're key. We wouldn't have any social housing being built in the past 10 years without CACs because the feds have been out of the business for a while and we won't see any dollars for that until 2019. I do believe that we need clear guidelines that set the path forward so that everybody knows uh, what what the rules of the game are when they go into this. Uh, I think Vision, we are committed to that. There is conversations at the moment happening at the city of Vancouver on the community benefits agreement portion. I think that's a model that we can look at for CAC guidelines and I'm anxiously waiting to see that. So would that be a specific rate or more of a negotiation with no, clear I guidelines? Think, I think that we need clarity on guidelines. I okay. think that we need clear guidelines. I think, you know, CACs look different depending on the project, depending on the neighborhood, but I think that if we have clear guidelines, uh, that would be that would make the process a lot more smoother. Yeah, we need uh, clarity around the guidelines and uh, we need transparency. We need to have an option. I, I met with a developer who went through a very difficult uh, CAC negotiation where the city determined that it was, uh, that his CAC contribution would be far more than he felt was worth to do a rental housing project. And um, he wasted a lot of time and money and ended up selling the project or sending, selling the land for considerably more money to build uh, condominiums. So. We lost an opportunity for purpose-built rental uh, because of a lack of clarity around CAC. So we need that clarity. We need predictability. Uh, we can't have one predetermined set of rates because there are so many different circumstances around CACs, but we do need the clarity. Uh, we do need those CACs. We need transparency. We need a system where we're presenting, where, where the developer can present the pro forma, the city can review the pro forma, and have a third party review the pro forma, and all of that is available to the public uh, so that the public knows what we're getting for public benefits, and we know that our public interest is being served. Uh, and I think that's the big bone of contention with the public around CACs, and obviously the bone of contention with the developer community around CACs is that there is no clarity, there is no predictability, uh, and there is no continuity, because there's an impression that, that certain players maybe have a better relationship with certain people, and uh, we need to get past that. We need to have clarity, predictability, transparent pro formas uh, and real public benefit, public acknowledgement of public benefits as public interest. Thanks, Pete. Jean. Yeah, I just wanted to add to the senior one. I forgot to say rent freeze would really help seniors. Jean, and we're Coke talking about CACs. To implementing, using every city power to implement rent fees at the province. For CACs, they definitely need to be transparent. I know of one case where a uh, Developer claimed that he was providing 20 units of social housing when actually the province was giving him over $7 million to build it, and everyone thought the developer was doing it. So we definitely need to know what's going to happen. We need a set rate. 
but I'm also skeptical of CACs. I think it would be way better to have a mansion tax or a land value tax because CACs are often given in exchange for density. And when you have density, then a lot of times you have gentrification. And when you have gentrification, you lose low-income housing that people desperately need. So, yeah, are the CACs worth the density? I think we, that's something that we need to really deal with. I don't think we always should go for CACs. I think sometimes they're too expensive on the communities they're, they're supposed to go to. Thank you, Jean. Hector. So against the advice of staff and our legal department at City Hall, we have been continuing to negotiate these taxes. They have been begging us to get to a clear, flat, scale, transparent, fair process for years. But we've become addicted to this money. Of our $1.6 billion total budget, it's about one-third of our total budget. But what I feel is that this is actually at a point now where um, we've forgotten about the Warren Buffett rule of compounding interest. By capping our neighborhoods, by not building more housing, we've actually been cheating ourselves. We've been cheating ourselves. We carry a debt of $400, over $400 per person in the city of Vancouver. In Burnaby, they have $2,000 in cash. Cash. So we need to learn from other jurisdictions, and that's why the core review is so critical. But we will get uh, to a, a flat rate, scalable, never on rental. We're going to have a part of our three-year market correction program, the elimination of CACAs on rental. We're going to prioritize bonus for density, and get the job done. But it's time to move past this sort of bad car deal that we do right now. And to Pete's point, this is a really critical story to remind people that we just lost 200 affordable rental units in downtown Vancouver in the midst of a housing crisis because the city irresponsibly tried to get $44 million, $44 million on a rental project. That is why we have a housing crisis. Thank you, Hector. <clears throat> Kennedy. Well, as a member of Parliament, I've worked under... Uh, some of the toughest conflict of interest uh, and lobbyist rules uh, in the world. Um, and so talking about CAC, sure, we have to review it and constantly review it, but uh, we also, not just the policy, but how it's conducted. And so um, what happens is we, we have uh, folks negotiating and uh, for the city with major developers, and then the next day they walk across the street and go and work for those developers, which is just wrong because it gives priority access to particular people in the city and it shuts out other businesses. So uh, in my platform, when I started off, said I would bring in tough conflict of interest rules. We need that fit for fairness for citizens, but also for all business. Uh, we need to have a lobbyist registry so we don't have councillors and the mayor wandering off and talking to people and you don't even know who they are. And then we have these big deals that happen. Um, and the other thing is we need a cooling off period for staff. Uh, and in fact, in my... Um, in my platform, I follow what happens in Montreal that's been a kind of a, a center of, of corruption for a long time municipally, is that if you work at all with the uh, real estate industry, you cannot hold a seat on City Hall. You cannot sit on council. 20 seconds. Um, so to prove, put my money where my mouth is, I am the only candidate right now proactively disclosing who donates to my campaign. So you'll see uh, next week I'll be, I'll, reduce, I'll be releasing my next disclosure. You can see everybody that donates over 100 bucks. There's nothing to hide here. Thank you. So when we're talking about CACs, I think what we first have to do is acknowledge what is its purpose. So when you're talking about a city, if the population is static, no growth is required, technically you don't need a lot more amenities because you have no increase in population, no increase in demand. The challenge is once you start to add density, whether this is rentals, whether it's a market, whether it's a luxury condo, whatever, you're adding more need to the community and it has to be financed. 
That's the purpose of the community amenity contributions. So from that perspective, before you can do anything with it, you have to do something that Patrick Condon and Scott Hine talked about. You actually need a full city community plan. You have to know what you're going to build, what you're going to need, where you're going to build, and what that capacity is. Without that, you cannot create a fixed schedule. Because what you're doing is you're creating a growth without any idea of what this is going to cost you long term to support. So without that, you can't even talk about the schedules. Once we've got that, I'm all for fixed. We want to know what it is. I also say it can't be just one rate. You've got to have a couple of wiggles. Because what happens, everybody wants something a little bit different. So at least you know if you're going to wobble outside of the parameters, this is what's going to happen. (coughs) But we want this to be all transparent. No secret deals, no special deals, everything is known, and everybody has a fair chance to compete. Thank you. Christine. So, of course, we agree on uh, transparency and clarity. We know from every uh, angle of these decisions that that is needed and uh, of benefit, particularly, I think, in rebuilding some public trust about the way that development decisions are getting made in Vancouver. Uh, And public trust is going to be necessary in addressing the level of housing crisis that we have. One of the big ideas that One City is bringing to this election, and you'll hear more as we launch our platform tomorrow, is a proposal for a land value capture in Vancouver. So without getting too wonky, a land value capture measures the increase in the value of land created through something like a public infrastructure investment, a subway along Broadway, or increased density uh, in in single-family neighborhoods. Those create an increase in the land value, and we can measure that, and then we tax a portion of that publicly created increase to create public benefit, to build the kind of affordable housing that we really need in the city. Um, A land value capture wouldn't entirely replace the CAC system, but it would certainly get us uh, a great deal off our reliance on it and provide a lot of clarity uh, and transparency in how those decisions are made and where those public funds are going. Thank you. Shauna. One of the big questions that I have is why has our capital budget become so much more dependent on community amenity contributions. The increase is astronomical. And there's also an equity issue here. Why, when you have so much buildings going on in certain areas, those community amenities of those areas are what get supported? What happens to those areas that don't have those towers? So there's an equity question here. So there's some transparency I need to get to to understand the answer to that question. And then I think we need to be looking much more differently. If we're going to be looking at gentle densification, then we've got to put an affordability mechanism with that. I think Christine's got to some of it. But if you're looking at densifying as a landowner, we're going to be upzoning all your land. That could be a windfall. How do we capture some of that? And I think you could, you could, you could go an affordability rate, create purpose-built rental, and the city could support you. Or you could go the the route of market rental charge and you would pay a community amenity contribution there. So we've got to look differently at not just high towers for community amenity contributions. Thanks, Sean. I think you all actually know. I don't know how much time we have. Do we have time for a lightning round before? Yes? Okay. Okay. All right. So we'll do a quick lightning round. These are very short one-word answers, preferable. But uh, but if you have to elaborate, we'll we'll give you one sentence. No more. (laughs) Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's a word. All right. Go Uh, ahead, Ian. The first question, we'll start with 
Diego will just continue in the same order. Uh, do you own, rent, or I guess live in a co-op? Uh, I rent. All right. Pete? I own. Gene? Co-op. Hector? Rent. Kennedy? Rent. David? You stone, but rent now. Christine? Uh, own with my credit union. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I own an equity co-op, which is different than a rental co-op. And Ken? I rent from the bank. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll start with, uh, with you, Pete. Would you introduce and or advocate for the province to introduce a land value tax? Uh, not yet. Comprehensive okay. plan first. Gene? Uh, that's kind of what the mansion tax is. And yeah, I think we really need to get that. It would be Hector. provincial, but we'll work for okay. it. Not right now, no. Kennedy? I think we have to wait and see what the current demand measures are doing. David? Traditional LBT, no. Modernized one, yes. Christine? Yes, absolutely. And Shauna? I'm getting worried about the extent to which the provincial government is eating at our property tax base, and I'm worried about the extent to which we will have maneuverability right. on and, our taxes, so unsure. Okay. No with an asterisk. Uh, definitely advocate to the provincial uh, government to take action on it. We'll start with Pete. Would you raise the empty homes tax? No, Gene. Sorry, Gene. I'm not good at this. Gene, would you raise the empty homes tax? Sure. sure. Hector? <laughs> Shocking. Hector? No, not right now. Uh, Kennedy? Up to triple. Uh, David? For land banks, up to triple. Christine? Yes. Shauna? Yes, triple to the Affordable Housing Fund. Ken? No, it's not effective. Diego? Uh, yes, we've been on the record since July, I okay. believe, that we will triple it. Yes, add more teeth, expand it to commercial and land banking. Hector, we'll start with you. Should incumbent residents have a veto over rezoning applications? Absolutely not. Kennedy? Nope. David? Don't know. I have to think more about it. Christine? No. Shauna? No veto. What was the question? What again? should uh, incumbent residents have a veto over rezoning applications? No, if we talk to the community and you know, the community agrees. Diego? Uh, no. Uh, no, because we're going to have a plan. We're doing a comprehensive plan. That's, that's <laughs> the plan. <laughs> and Gene? No. Uh, number five. Will you develop purpose built rentals on city owned land starting with Kennedy? 25,000. 10 years. David? No. Christine? Yes. Shauna? Yes, in partnership with the community housing sector. Ken? Yes, 30,000. Diego? Sorry, Will you build purpose-built rentals on city-owned land? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're doing it already. 20 sites. We'll, um, we are willing Ken? to promise uh, 20 more. <laughs> yes, uh, with a provision for a considerable amount of uh, non-market purpose-built rental. Gene? Uh, uh, yes, with lots of social housing at low income. Hector? Yes, at a 50-50 social market. And, uh, and David, are you in favor of a progressive property tax or mansion tax? Progressive. Christine? Uh, yes, a progressive property tax. Sure. Progressive. Ken? No. Diego? Progressive. Uh, I'm troubled by the current uh, incursion of the provincial government into our, into our taxation base, actually. Yes. So I would, wanna, yes. I would want to no. qualify that as, uh, yes, progressive tax, if it's staying in, in the city of Vancouver and going towards okay. the people who live and work here. Gene? A mansion tax is a progressive tax, and it should be allocated. Hector. Build more housing, widen the base. Kennedy. Progressive tax, but we already have a mansion tax with the uh, school tax that the province puts in. Uh, next, would you have voted for the council's making room proposal? I believe we're starting with Christine. 
yes, and I think we need a land value capture in place for it. Shauna. Yes, with an affordability mechanism and further consultation. Ken. I think the consultation process was flawed, so I, I wouldn't vote for it until people had more information on it. And We're getting I'm very far from one-word answers, and we're letting you all go. Uh, it's everyone. It's not any. I'm not trying to pick on anyone. Diego. Yes. Uh, Pete, thank you. Uh, I wouldn't vote on it without a public hearing first, and I don't think the public hearings happened. Gene. And not without a recapture of the land value and without some uh, understanding Hector. of how many low-income people will be displaced. So, no. I'm the only person actually at City Hall, and legally I cannot answer that question. All I can say is that I must keep an open mind. <laughs> Kennedy. I would vote to defer so the next council can do it. <laughs> David. Where's the citywide community plan? No. All right. That's it. That's yeah. it for the lightning round. That's it for us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. We haven't got to do this in so long. I Okay, so if you're just here for the schmoozing and you've done your civic duty and listened and paid attention, thank you. Good job for sitting and being patient. Feel free to go schmooze with your friends outside. Uh, however, if you just can't get enough, we've got time for some more questions. We'll do another 20, 30 minutes. I think I'll go down to one minute. I've got uh, some very good questions uh, from uh, people that uh, you know participated online. Uh, if some other people have questions when we're done, who knows? Maybe even that. We'll see how everybody's feeling. Uh, if you want to dribble out again, feel totally free. But uh, I'm going to give everybody a minute. Who was the last first person? Uh, Ken. Okay, so we're going to start with Diego. Okay. I don't know exactly how many homes have been built over the last five, six years. Let's say we're permitting about 5,000 per year. Hypothetical for each of you, and, and you know, again, about a minute, eh, even less. If the city had insisted, and I know there's no transparent formula, I think many of us think there should be, had in general the city sought 30% more on each deal in CACs, than they're currently charging. So you bump CACs significantly, 30% above where they are today. How many fewer units would have been built, and what would that have done to prices of condos and rents for apartments? Okay, so we're raising CACs across the board, 30% from where they are. How many fewer units would you have scared away? How many units as a percent of what's being built would have been scared away by those higher CACs? And what would that have done to prices and rents of condos? Okay, so Diego, you're up. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, <laughs> is, this, is this a multiple choice answer? <laughs> um, <laughs> Listen, I, I, to be very honest, I, I'm not a math nerd, so I cannot calculate how many fewer units. Uh, but I can tell you that for sure zero units of social housing, uh, because that's are the ones that we've gotten out of CACs. And yeah, and the second part of the question was, how many fewer units? Well, okay, yeah, you know, so well, to, for, for this one, suppose 10% fewer units had been we built. What would have happened to prices and rents? <laughs> what would have happened to prices of rent? Well, I can tell you that our, our vacancy rate will be much lower. So 
I think probably rent would be higher. And I wouldn't be living here for sure. So I wouldn't be on this panel. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you very much. Pete, so uh, we've raised CACs 30%. How much uh, in percent does that reduce the amount of construction that happens? And what does that do to prices and rents? I love these sort of science fiction-y <laughs> questions that you're, you're floating today, the Kobayashi Maru and this. I don't think it's it's possible to even analyze this in a vacuum because, you know, we have to consider all the other myriad of factors, not to mention, like, interest rates, the cost of steel, yeah. uh, impacts of, like, the speculation tax, all these different things that will factor. Yeah, you're into holding those constant. Oh. <laughs> you should get, Diego should have another shot at this now because you've added some more factors. But, uh, so, but uh, I, was, I was twisting this around because you're giving me this sort of sci-fi scenario. And, and, you know, really what we're looking towards is an opportunity where CACs are negotiated truly as a public benefit in a participatory budgeting kind of a context so that those public benefits actually do feel like public benefits. And maybe that would be a benefit to the construction. So a well-managed CAC system that has that transparency and the public benefit component, maybe that would be enough to, to fill those empty condos that we then, and, and, and mitigate that loss in, uh, in supply, potential Thank you. supply. Thank you. Gene Swanson, what do CAC, do CACs, to what extent are they going to, do they chase away development? When you raise them, how much less do you get? And how much does new construction then feed through into prices and rents? Would prices and rents be a lot higher had there been less building as a result so of higher CACs? that's a very CACs? esoteric question. And in COPE, we're like encountering every day people who are dying of homelessness, people who are completely stressed out because they don't know where they're going to live because their rent is too high. And we're focusing on getting more non-market okay, housing. Okay, let's stick to the question. Let's more, stick to the question. All right, all right, all right, all right, you're not going to answer. Not okay. more luxury rentals that nobody who's in need can afford. Okay. Uh, Tom, it's question period, not answer period, so you get what you get. <laughs> but the thing is, it's also a rhetorical question. Um, the answer is obvious, but the, the real question is... Well, what's the answer? CACs, of course. You, if, you, if it needs to be explained that CACs <laughs> chase away uh, building, as it has in Vancouver, if it needs to be explained that higher CACs get passed along to the consumer and obviously gets uh, added into the cost of housing, as it has in the city of Vancouver, where 26% of the housing costs is city fees, you shouldn't be running for office. The, the thing is that the, we have to move beyond... There's two things that are real. Climate change is real. Vancouver's house is a crisis and it's a supply crisis is real and it's been born out of um, and a failure to address it. But just imagine, just imagine how much rental would have been built if we had not been charging CACs on rental in the city of Vancouver, that we treated rental as the amenity. That's the question. All right, Expensive terrific. Rental? Okay. <laughs> okay, Kennedy. Uh, let me refine here a little bit further. Okay. Some people think CACs chase away development. <laughs> Some people think they don't chase away development, but the developer just decides to charge a higher price to the end user. Some people think higher CACs just knock down land prices. So I'm asking when you put that all together, and then... Some people think new construction is just unaffordable luxury stuff that doesn't create lower prices and rents. And some people think when supply in a market grows, prices and rents fall. So putting those ideas together, had CACs been 30% higher, how much as a percentage less new construction would we have had? And how would that less new construction have filtered through into prices and rents? 
I, th I think as a political scientist, I'm going to rescue the economist. And I'm going to say that CACs are always going to chase away development, but it's a community choice about how much you're willing to give up to accept benefit. And that is what, that's why certainty is so important. That's why that developers probably fewer would run away if you had more certainty on what's happening. And what's really uncertain is when you have somebody negotiating in the back room who then goes over and works for the developers. So that's why we have to stop that. Thanks. Um, uh, David Chen. So I've seen estimates that CACs are about 40% of development. So that means if it goes up 30%, then you should see a 12% increase in the price if there is no jigging of those numbers with trying to recover the cost and adding a profit margin to it, which is traditional within business calculations. Now, without the marginal units of utility calculation curve, I can't tell you the number, but I can tell you the momentum. So when it comes to development, the CACs won't necessarily drive away business. It depends on what the buying power of the client is and what they're willing to pay. That's what's going to affect, and that's what the marginal units of utility is. So in general, as the price goes up, you're going to get a decrease in buyers, you're going to get an increase in price, and you're going to get an increase in rents because they're related to those market prices. Okay, Christine Boyle. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so, so I think had we had a land value capture over the past 10 years, we would have uh, less speculation, we would have more funds that we could have used to build public and social housing and the types of housing that we need. Uh, and that's as much as I'm going to try to answer this um, question, except to say uh, one city is running two candidates for city council, myself. <laughs> oh, and no, 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 no. You'll find our information. We'd love your support. Terrific. Thank yes. you very much. Shauna Sylvester. I know you're hoping for something here, Tom, uh, yeah. but okay, so the financial lift is how much on the upzoning? We're, we're increasing all the CACs by 30% from the okay. current ask. Okay. So I can't answer the question because I'm going through pro formas and I'm saying, okay, well, would it be a 10% increase and would that be enough to stop um, any of the... I'm not sure... It, well, we, it would work for BOFO and the Kettle Development. They were asked for another 10 million lift. Um, on the Venables property, and it was enough for them to walk away, and that was a sad thing. So it is enough, but is that a political decision, or is it a real economic decision? And without looking at it, honestly, I can't figure out how you can get from A to B without looking at the pro forma, so I need to see that. Terrific. Thank you, Shauna. And uh, Ken Sim. Uh, there's two answers there. Um, it depends when the CAC is determined. And so if there's certainty before the developer buys the land, they actually build that into the price of the land sure. so they pay the same, so demand won't decrease at all. If that's not the case and you build the CAC after the fact, I have no answer for you because I don't, I don't actually know what the elasticity of demand is. Thank you very much. Close. <laughs> The, uh, the correct or, you know, different answers, uh, representative answers will be posted on Twitter after the debate. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yeah, what's the answer? It's supposed to be a deba the, the debate. I, look, the debate I wanted, just so everybody knows. The debate. What's no, the answer? No, no, no. The debate. Whoa, no, one sentence. One sentence answer. If, if it was me, I'd say it would have had very little impact because it reduces land prices. Land, you're building it to, you're selling it 2,000 bucks a square foot. It costs you 400. You got $1,600 uh, a, a built square foot. 
you know, you can jack up CACs, that just comes out of profit and land prices. That's what I was looking for, but I would have taken, no, I don't believe it, I think, you know, uh, developers pass it all through to the end user or else they walk away and you wouldn't have had any building. Those were the flavor of answers I was looking for. Yeah, so not, yeah, you know, I, that, that's what I was looking for, but I'm not trying to put my thumb on the scale here. Okay, <laughs> next question, and here we can do a little more, you know, not economics. How do we get more rental housing built, and should we? Or is it okay if all the building we're doing is condos? So uh, this one goes first to Pete. How do we get more rental, or should we even bother, and are we good with condos? Well, uh, you know, we're a city with over half the population rent. 43% uh, of those are paying more than one-third of their income on rents. So I think clearly uh, we do need to be building more rental housing. And uh, the question is the, the type of rental housing. I think we've put a lot of focus on market rental housing, and I don't think market rental housing is necessarily addressing the immediate needs of a huge portion of our population. I think we need to uh, be very clear when we define affordability. Currently, we define affordability in a very uh, ambiguous uh, way, and I think we need to tie affordability to lo local, local incomes and make sure that we're actually providing affordable housing for people who live and work here. And I would like to take this opportunity to mention my running mate, Michael Weeb. All right, Diane. No, 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 no. Okay. So, so well, Christina started. Pete did a great job and did 30 seconds. So we're going to keep this round to 30 seconds. Gene Swanson. Developers aren't going to build housing rental or condo for the poorest half of income earners who are the ones who need housing the most. Housing is a human right. The market won't provide it for the people who need it the most. We need more social housing that low-income people can afford, and that's why we need a mansion tax. And this is what COPE and our candidates, Ann Roberts and Derek O'Keefe, are running on. Terrific. Thank you. Hector Bremner. So it's not a zero-sum game. We need all types of housing. And we need to legalize housing on 76% of our land, which currently is exclusionary zoning. Rental needs to be in all of our communities, and we're not going to get there by the current plan of strata condos and this myth that you know they get rented out. We also can't irresponsibly expect that future generations should aspire to live in basement suites. So we need purpose-built rental, and we're going to get there by pre-zoning for it, dropping the CACs, bonusing for density, prioritizing the approvals, and getting it done fast and getting it done now. Terrific. Thank you very much. Uh, Kennedy. Yeah, well, about 8% uh, of our housing stock right now is uh, not-for-profit affordable rental housing. Uh, but most cities around the world find that this doesn't work very well, and what you start to have is upward pressure on your labor costs, and that's what's happening here. So that's why small businesses are finding it so hard to uh, find employees, is because folks can't find a place to live. And what every other city in the world figures out is that you actually have to start uh, building uh, uh, affordable housing that's run by nonprofit associations. And then whatever revenue you make, you put in to the housing that, that Gene was talking about for the folks that are really on the margins of society. And that's what a successful housing model looks like. Terrific. Thank you. David Chen. So there's a few things I would say. Uh, when you're looking at purpose-built rentals, you have to understand that on the performa, the time it takes to develop is actually critical. So if we can chop down the administrative time, that will increase the profitability of it and reduce the risk on the performa. Second thing is the province recently gave the powers to the city to actually zone for rental only. And this is actually critical because the way markets work is they're going to look for signals for speculation. 
So if you don't have rental-only zoning, that means that the purpose-built rentals are competing with market condos. And if you understand the whole development process, the market condos have an edge. They have an edge on their financing. They have an edge on the buying power. And you cannot compete. So you need to step in and use those powers the province has given to enforce a rental-only zoning. Now, the third thing that I would suggest is to also put in um, covenants and housing agreements to also control that. Thanks. Terrific. Christine Boyle. I guess I would agree with most folks. We need more rental housing in this city. The low vacancy rate is a safety and and stability issue for renters in this city. I think we need to uh, do everything we can to protect our existing rental stock, which is our most affordable rental stock in this city. Um, And then, as you've heard me say, I think we need need plenty of public and non-market rental that is truly affordable for people in the city. But also, we want to make it, one city wants to make it easier to build purpose-built rental. We want to make it as easy as it currently is to build single detached housing in the city. So we want uh, rental by right, and we want to fast-track those types of proposals so that they're happening. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, Shauna Sylvester. So I think that we've been in the framing of supply and demand on uh, the housing issue, and I think that's the wrong framing. We need to get start talking about the supply and the need of Vancouverites, because we have an international demand that's hungry. We've really got to build to what Vancouverites need, which is very much purpose-built rental for 51% of our population needs that. We've got to get to a 3% vacancy rate. So I did a six-point plan. I'm not going to get into all of it, but it's a, it, it holds together. It includes taking our land and assets and putting it with the community housing sector to get to purpose-built rental, affordable rental, becoming North America's capital for cooperatives and co-housing. That gentle densification, but with an affordability mechanism. And I, I could keep going, but and housing authorities. We haven't talked about those. Those are things David touched on the notion of a covenant land trust, they're things that you put in perpetuity like you have at Whistler to pay okay. for and insure housing for their employees. Terrific. Thank you. Ken Sim. Yeah, we will be uh, building uh, rental property on city-owned land. We'll be working with the province, with the feds, co-ops, not-for-profits in the private sector to build it. I think it's really important to note that if we do not do this, Vancouver will be an inter- become an international bedroom community where we'll have a bunch of empty homes and not a lot of businesses and restaurants. And Tom, I promise you, I will not talk about the amazing candidates we have from the NBA. All <laughs> I think it will be bad Thank form. <laughs> just saying. Excellent self-control. Thank you. Name name vehicles after them. Okay, uh, Diego Cardona. Thank uh, yes to more rental housing, and yes to the type that we need desperately in Vancouver. That young people like myself who have multiple jobs and you know uh, live on their own and lost their parents' need, which is below market units. So we have currently twenty city-owned sites that are going to produce three thousand units of below market rental. Uh, we are willing to pledge twenty more. Uh, if we get elected, uh, 2,000 new cops—that is our goal—and we're willing to live by it. We're also willing. We're also going to focus on renewing the co-op leases and uh, picking the 10 most urgent leases that are about to expire and say, "This is the city land that we have to renew those leases. They're urgent. Let's do it now." Uh, tie affordability to local incomes. Continue to advocate for the okay, GST to be waived at the federal level for purpose-built rental, and of course, our fast track program. Okay. Terrific. Okay, so uh, 
Ken uh, segued into a question from our friend from uh, SFU, who asks, <coughs> paraphrasing, what is the role of foreign investment in Vancouver's housing market these days? Is it a big deal? Is it not much of a big deal? Little bit of a deal. Uh, and what should be the role of foreign money? Is there anything good about foreign money in the Vancouver market, or is it all dirty, naughty, bad? Okay, uh, leading us off is Gene Swanson. We'll give us 45 seconds uh, on this one. I, I apologize for the short time, but there's a lot of people, and I want to hear what everybody has to say. Yeah, so the big issue here is is the speculation, not the nationality of the person that's doing it. So we need we desperately need a good speculation tax so people can't um, sell housing that they've bought for a much higher price very shortly after they buy it. Okay, that was... Very fast. Okay, Hector Bremner. Well, I agree with uh, Gene's sentiment that we have been focusing on attacking people, not the process. So that's why a part of our plan, and um, it's live now, you can go on our Facebook page and, and find this plan, but there's a series of demand measures in here that we have uh, brought forward. One of them is a made in Vancouver speculation tax, that if you do not improve uh, a property, a piece of residential real estate within 24 months and sell it, you will pay a 50% tax on that. We will also look to ask the province, uh, and we will test a charter to end the corporate ownership of residential real estate. There is no reason to be sheltering assets in numbered corporations. We also want to apply basic securities law to conveyance. And what we mean by that is, is that when you do put it in your name, that it's in your name and that we know who owns this. And so those are just a few of the measures that we need to address. But we need to change what we do and how we do it, but not who we are. And that's critical. Terrific. Thank you. Kennedy Stewart. Yeah, so I put a motion forward in the House of Commons uh, to get a handle on this and convince Bill Morneau to uh, put 500000 bucks into studying uh, this through Statistics Canada. And we got our first real data about what's happening here. Uh, and we found out foreign investment is lower than we thought, but not in all segments of the market. Uh, condos are a pretty hot commodity here. So uh, in my platform, I put in uh, protections against this uh, to protect between one-third and one-half of all new homes that are built uh, over the next 10 years. I think that's probably strikes the right balance, but we have to continue to collect more and more data to understand this because it is a, a new world out there. Thank you. Thank you. Terrific. David Chen. So to understand this question, you have to understand why there's a connection between the housing market price and the local population. So I did some math and I found out that the reason why from the 1970s to about 1983, housing prices were always about four times an annual family income. And that's because if you put 20% down, you have 4% interest and a 25-year amortization, you get four times the price. That's the connection. Once it goes outside of that, that's not us. That is global unregulated capital. Now, that global unregulated capital can be interprovincial as well as international. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. The problem is it destabilizes our economy and it creates this housing problem that we're experiencing. And we need to deal with that. So taxation is one model. But I've also looked at Singapore and they got an interesting thing where about 80% of the territory you cannot buy as an outsider. And that might be something we have to look at. Terrific. Thank you very much. Christine Boyle. So I'd agree that the problem that we have isn't uh, isn't about where investors are from. The problem is that people are thinking of housing as an investment rather than as a home for people to live in. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm glad that I think our provincial government is doing some important work on this front around speculation and around uh, collecting better data. Um, 
I think there, you know, there are no speculative renters, so we should have more rental units uh, available for all of those folks. Um, and a agree that we can address the issue that the housing market is broken and that housing should be for living in and not for uh, storing money. So in 2012, when I was facilitating the mayor's task force on affordable housing, uh, the mayor came in and there was an academic working group. And he said, I have one question for you, only one. Can you tell me if foreign investment is having impact on our housing market? You know what the answer to that question was at the end of that task force? No, it's not. And that was in 2012. Turn around and look at the Nelson Street, those three walk-ups that went for, you know, were assessed at 16 million, went for 60 million uh, by a financial consortium, international financial consortium, and turned around eight months later for 67 million. Those three walk-ups have not been developed. They were assessed at 16 million. Yes, it's having an impact, but that's why you start to look. We will always be an international city. People will use real estate as a financial instrument. We have to have ways of protecting the supply of the city. And that's why we got to put in play a housing strategy that's going to get to the needs of the people that live here without getting into okay. saying, we're going to close our doors completely. Terrific. Thank you very much. Ken Sim. Yeah, you know, I, I think we have to be clear. Like, how are we defining foreigners? Um, does that mean it's someone from Ontario? Like, is, is it okay if someone from Ontario buys a place in BC, but if they're from Hong Kong, they can't? I think what we need to do is we need to, the real issue is affordable housing for people that want to live and work here. And if we tackle that challenge, I think it all, it, you know, we're not even going to be having a conversation about foreign investment. Um, the data is unclear, you know, and we've, we've looked at, we've tried to find data and you have conflicting data as to how big the issue is. No one has, no one has the answer because no one trusts the data. And, um, you know, I, I remember one of my, Mil uh, my, my mentor, Milton Wong, um, back in the 80s, um, we were having the same conversation. And he actually commissioned a study, and that, the study actually said no. It's actually the local, uh, the local uh, residents and people from across Canada had a way more, uh, a bigger impact on house prices than foreigners. So I'm not against anyone. Let's just get to the data. Great, terrific. Thank you very much, Diego Cardona. Thank you. Uh, as a lifelong, I would identify myself anti anti racism activist because I had to be one to survive. That's what many folks in communities of colors do. And, you know, the framing of this question is always scary to us, particularly in the climate of, of rising racism, not just in our city, but particularly all over the Western world. And I think the real problem here is unregulated speculation that, lead, that leads to prices that I can certainly not afford. So the empty homes tax, what the province is doing around the school tax, around the speculation tax, those are measures that we need to cool down the market and regulate this unrealistic speculation, and that the conversation that needs to be, we use that money, what do we use that money for that we're collecting? And the answer, I think, is obvious, is to build affordable housing. Terrific. Thank you. Pete Fry. Yeah, so obviously this is a conversation we've been having for a while now, uh, and all the while we've been talking about show us the data. Uh, so uh, last week I went to uh, the Grand, uh, Greater Vancouver Board of Trade held a, a, a candidate orientation thing. Ken was there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one of the most fascinating things was some data from CMHC. Uh, and a guy named Eric Bond, I actually took a, I have a photo of it on my phone. That's why I was looking at my phone earlier. Uh, they've come up with data. It's uh, for condos built in 2016-17, 15% non-resident ownership. 
So clearly there is an issue. It's even higher. This is for Vancouver. It's even higher at UBC. So clearly it's an issue. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to hear that at UBCM right now, they've just actually passed a motion to add to the transparency of disclosure of beneficial ownership that they want to investigate into who's doing pre-sales because we don't have any transparency over pre-sales. And that is a mighty fine investment vehicle. And it's clearly adding to the, the end cost for local buyers and renters. And I will say that there might be an opportunity for us to, not all foreign capital is necessarily bad. There's probably an opportunity that we could leverage it to invest in the kind of housing we need. So if we want to build rental housing, the kind of programs that we had from the feds in the 70s and in the 80s, the MERB program, that kind of stuff, let's start leveraging the desire to invest in our country and in this region and use it for good. Terrific. Just, Thank you. Sorry, one clarifying yeah. thing. So. That is ah. right. That was actually, there was data from CMHC. Yes, I actually asked a follow-up question. And yeah. I actually asked the question, well, of the 15%, how many of those units are being rented out to locals? <laughs> and they did not have an answer. Well, for they free-forming here, this data. is, uh, that was the data that, that <laughs> I got through Morneau. All right, all right, all right, all right. I got to stop it. I got to stop. You know, I love talking about like, this stuff, there's but I can't, of, there's rules, there's rules, there's rules. Okay. Uh, did you guys do homelessness? Did we get homelessness? No. no. Okay. So let's give ourselves a, a full, amazing 45 seconds for our best answers on what, I mean, you know. Oh, oh I want to say about the other one. Gene was right. I didn't mention, and I should have, the unceded territory. And I do think the foreign buyer question is always an appropriate time to reflect Ooh. on. Our forebears did not have the decency to pay six million bucks uh, a, a lot for uh, the land here. So something, something just in context. Okay, so um, going going back to 45 seconds, what do we do? Obviously, you know, it's a very serious topic, but what do we do in 45 seconds uh, about homelessness in Vancouver? We actually start to care. See, the reality is, is we like to talk about it, but if we really face the facts that when a push comes to shove, making investments and getting the job done when it comes to dealing with the hardest to house, we actually hold back. We think that they're not our brothers and our sisters and our cousins and our mothers and our fathers. But I only have 45 seconds, and so the answer is this. This is what other jurisdictions have done. This is what's the success model. It is no-barrier housing. You have to build no-barrier housing to adequately, ha adequately house the individuals that are on our streets. And you have to do it quickly, and you have to do it now. And you don't need to wait for the province. You don't need to wait for the feds. We have $355 billion in mortgage-free equity in the city. Let's unlock it. Let's build no-barrier housing, and let's do it now. Terrific. Kennedy. Yeah, well, um, it's a really tough thing. First, we have to start. I grew up in rural Nova Scotia. Everybody's a neighbor. That's how it should work in this city is everybody's a neighbor. And then what you do is use the models they use all around the world is you use uh, equity from uh, from uh, nonprofit housing. That's the workforce rents. You use the uh, revenue from that, and that's when you build the SRO, other style uh, housing for the hard to house. And you... Deal with the feds in the province to get help for mental illness and uh, addiction, especially in this other crisis, which is the opioid epidemic. Horrendous. Terrific. David. So I read a study somewhere that said that for every marginalized person out there, we're actually spending up to $134,000 a year on them because of our poverty-based model. What we need to do is think otherwise. We need to raise the bottom so that we're not paying that price tag because we already are. Now, we went to the Board of Trade and Coastal Health was talking about something really interesting. They said isolation and homelessness 
does lead to two times higher risk of illness and three times higher risk of mental problems. Those are the leading causes for our problems with homelessness. So if we do move away from this poverty model and actually raise the bottom, house people, go back to four pillars models, use all the tools to our advantage, we can actually cut the cost of homelessness and actually deal with it much better than we are right now. Thank you. Uh, Christine Boyle. I think the, the studies from every field show us that, that financially and for all of the much more important, I think, moral and ethical reasons that we need to be housing people, we need a housing first approach so that people have a safe and secure place to be rebuilding their lives and healing from the trauma in it. Um, so certainly we would, as I said, prioritize building temporary modular housing units for, uh, for every everyone who needs them in Vancouver, thousands of them, uh, if we need, we, we need to be upholding standards and maintenance bylaws uh, in our existing SROs and ensuring that those are safe uh, and healthy places for people to be living. And in particular, I think, you know, we, we need no barrier housing, but we need to make sure that it's safe and appropriate for people. So uh, specific housing for women and for seniors, families, um, and indigenous culturally rooted shelter spaces so that people can uh, have the supports they need to be rebuilding and thank healing. You. Thank, thank you very much. Shauna Sylvester. So one of the things that we heard earlier is that developers don't build um, homes for low-income people. Actually, we have a whole community of uh, community housing developers who've got 40 years of experience doing this, but we don't treat them as partners. We hand them the keys at the end. So we are going to build 2,800, 1,000 committed to women with the community housing sector, treating them as a partner, not telling them and prescribing them. Also clean up the SROs. Why can't we issue those fees, those punitive conditions when they don't live up to what they're doing? And then, and this is really Jean educating me. I'll be really honest, the extent to understanding what's going on with those SROs and that we have the capacity within the city government to expropriate them if those landlords will not clean up those slums. Thank you. Uh, Ken Sim. You know, I, I know this issue is way bigger than the downtown east side. It covers the entire city, the province, and the country. Um, as a family and with friends, we've been going down to the downtown east side uh, for the last two decades, uh, giving out bagels, bananas, socks, feminine hygiene products, but more importantly, we give out identity. And every single person who's homeless in the downtown east side I'm just using this as an example, can be someone's brother or sister, son or daughter. And I think we have to take a very empathetic approach to this. And we have to be bold. Homelessness isn't a Vancouver issue. It's a regional issue. It's a provincial issue and a federal issue. And we have to work with all levels of government and coordinate our efforts together and then have the political courage to stand up and fight for our less fortunate. Thank you. Diego Cardona. Thank you. I think at the essence of this question is that housing is a, is a human right. But I think on the, on the practical side, we're definitely committed to 1,200 units of modular housing. Uh, we're definitely, we will definitely continue to advocate for higher penalties for bad landlords, continue to advocate for a shortened timeline. When we gave them uh, notices of renovations or cleanup, it's 60 days. We want to shorten that so that it's quicker. And then People should also address the root causes of homelessness. It's not just about, it's not just not having homes. It's that, it's that we have a broken foster care system that produces thousands of people who end up homelessness. 48% of us end up homeless at some point. We have low wages for folks like myself and other folks and other families 
that haven't risen, that haven't risen in a long time. And we need higher welfare rates, higher disability rates. We need to address all the aspects of what leads people to be homeless. Thank you very much. Pete Fry. I appreciate that context Diego gave to addressing the roots of homelessness um, because it is important and, is, and that's critical. Uh, as the response to homelessness, on the other hand, I mean, we do have to take a housing first approach. Uh, we need to leverage as much city land as we have uh, and take advantage of additional provincial measures to increase the amount of temporary modular housing. That being said, we can't build temporary modular housing fast enough to address the homelessness crisis that we have. So we need to also have a triage approach well, I mean, we're, okay, well, so we're not doing that then as, as the current approach. So we need to have a triage approach as well that mitigates some of the risks that are inherent to people sleeping outside right now in a variety of different circumstances, sanctioned tent areas that have water, toilets, outreach, security, services, and try and get people established back into housing, secure housing. But we need to do something better than what we're doing now because it's clearly not working and we need to do more of it. So, Thank you. Gene Swanson. So uh, this is a life-threatening issue. I demand more time for this, or at least equal time to CACs. People who are homeless have half the life expectancy as other people. This is an issue that can be solved. All we need is the political will, and the thing that's missing is the money, the upfront money, because in the long term it will pay for itself. We can have modular housing for every homeless person it doesn't have to be temporary modular housing. It can be permanent modular housing. The only thing that's temporary about it is the land. We have that huge property endowment fund that could provide the land. We could have modular housing for every homeless person that's been counted within a year if we had the money for it. The money could be provided by a mansion tax in one year. We could find homes for every counted homeless person. Um, the other thing we have to deal with is the roots of poverty and trauma that are causing all this problem. And that means, as a city, we need to push really hard within our own city and with other levels of government to raise welfare rates, raise disability rates, and make sure that people have enough money to rent a place to live. Welfare is $710 a month. You cannot eat and rent a place on welfare unless you're in social housing. We desperately need rent control so that if the province really does have a poverty reduction strategy, all that money that goes into welfare and disability doesn't get schlepped up by landlords. So those are things that a city council needs to really okay, push for, I, I and I there. guarantee Thank you, you. Thank you that if anyone is Thanks. on there, that there's no one on okay. there that will be pushed harder than me for that. Great. Thank you. Okay, uh, last question, and you did mention rent control. I have so many nerd out, you know, hypotheticals that would make such good exam questions, uh, but the good news is there's a lot of really smart people in this room, uh, and uh, some of them are on stage, uh, you know, <laughs> no, but a lot of them are in the audience too, and uh, you, you know, we're going to do a media availability, but I would totally recommend you talk to uh, some of uh, our grads and friends uh, and, and take advantage of what they, what they thought and what feedback they have. Uh, and uh, I'm always around for, uh, you know, nerd out. So anyway, last question, and we'll just make it real lightning round, one number. Uh, 
Rent control uh, is allowing 2% above CPI this year, going to 4.5% uh, allowable rent increases under rent control. Uh, what number should it be? So uh, suppose just a rule, how much above CPI uh, should be allowed? And if you want a rent freeze, you can say minus CPI, that's zero. And if you think there shouldn't be any rent control, you can say infinity, and it's up to the landlord, or you can come up with some number in between. Okay, so minus CPI is a freeze, uh, and uh, infinity you know is free market anywhere this, right? in between. That there's no way we're going to... You've got to give me a number. You're okay. going to give me a number. Well, some, I know somebody's <laughs> going to give me a number. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, you know, you can, you, you can give me a number. You can say, or, or if we want to say pass, pass. One number. Kennedy Stewart. Uh, let's see. I would <laughs> freeze the 2% for now. Okay. <laughs> David Chen. 2% because that's what matches a lot of government figures for loans on deferrals. Christine Boyle. I'm going to say long-term um, at inflation, and we need vacancy control t to avoid renovations. I told you wouldn't do it. Shauna. <laughs> Apply it to the unit, not the person, so that when somebody yeah. moves out, they don't jack up the rate, so then keep it at 2. 2. Okay. Ken. Depends. <laughs> Diego. I would uh, concur with Shauna. Uh, the unit, not the person, at 2%. Pete. Well, I'm actually running for city council, but I would advise my provincial counterparts. Nice. Uh, well, that's that, not a number, though. <laughs> that 2%, and, uh, but also uh, vacancy controls. Great. Gene Swanson. 0% vacancy control and city doing everything in its power to implement this on its own if the province won't. Hector Bremner, finally. Rent controls hurt renters. Build more rental. Okay, infinity. Thank you very much, everybody, and thank you so much to all the candidates. Everybody, thank you for coming. We'll see you next year.